0: You are listening to the Internet of Blockchains. Join us as we look closely at how blockchains will communicate, cooperate, and transform our world. Salutations, Scott Wayman here, your host, and welcome to episode 2, produced, recorded, and edited in my living room. Today we have an interview with Alexander, otherwise known as Dungor, in the BlockNet Community Discord. Check the show notes for a link and feel free to join us there. Okay, there's no time like the present, so on to the interview. So, today we have with us Alexander, and he is one of the earliest or one of the very early members of the BlockNet community. And he is going to talk to us today about his proposal for blockchain governance for the BlockNet specifically. Welcome, Alexander. Thank you, Scott. Thank you for having me. Appreciate your time and really looking forward to our conversation. I'm, I'm certain that I'm going to learn a lot.
1: I'm looking forward to, to trying to help with that.
0: Fantastic. So if you could uh, just start off by telling us a little bit about yourself, how you became interested in blockchain technology?
1: Okay, yeah. Um, so I, I think I have a, a somewhat similar story to most. Uh, I had, you know, back in the days, this friend who kept bugging me about this new technology. And initially, it was just some weird nerd money on the internet that his friends could use to buy drugs. <laughs> but eventually, you know, you you look into it a bit more, and you find out that the technology behind it has more use cases than just uh, internet currency. Not that that use case is not interesting in itself. Sure. But um, I was working for a, a big Danish, a big international company uh, at the time. It's um, engineering uh, and supply chain within uh, mineral mineral extraction and um, cement, uh, cement plants. So big uh, engineering construction. And uh, I was exposed to a lot of, um, even though I'm, I have an IT background, I was exposed to a lot of supply chain so i could see that there was a lot of these use cases within supply chain and within dealing with with several businesses in a in a low trust environment because if you're dealing with emerging economies then you're gonna deal with a lack of trust so i was um looking slowly into well this blockchain it it has potential i mean mind you i i was starting to look into blockchain before we had the the Ethereum before we had smart contracts. Um, but I could see the idea behind a, a public ledger. And you kind of just, you get sucked into it and you go down the, the rabbit hole.
0: You definitely do.
1: And all of a sudden you you talk with it with all your colleagues and a lot of them baby boomers and, you know, the older generation than me, they do not see the the benefit. And the idea of having a decentralized currencies I mean, frankly, it scares them. And they have a hard time looking further than, than that. Uh, only just now, I'm, I seem to, because I have a job where I'm exposed to the general market, now I'm slowly seeing that there are some interest in blockchain for uh, various use cases. And that's that's great to see. It's great to have been on, on this journey. And uh, I'm very grateful and, and thankful that I had the opportunity to follow the industry through uh, the, the projects that I've been involved with which is primarily uh X currency and and blocknet
0: all right, so you've been you have been there since the beginning, and uh blocknet was conceived in two thousand and fourteen correct
1: yes that that's correct,
0: so that's been like four whole years already that you've been involved, yeah, that's true, and that's actually quite a long time for the crypto sphere <laughs> yeah, it is that's fantastic that you're able to. Connect your day-to-day work with this new emerging area of technology, and you see the opportunities. And you're not burdened by these old prejudices of how things should or can work, and that has sustained your interest and got you involved directly.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's uh, it's, it's one of those opportunities that you kind of fall into. Regarding Xcurrency, I was initially I I came to Bitcoin, the Bitcoin Talk forum uh, through one of the troll. Uh, troll boxes i think it was the troll box of uh, btce back uh, when that was uh, a big exchange um, and there i I've, i was browsing through the forum, and i found the currency thread and i thought that uh, dan and arlen they were talking uh, in a language that i understood mm-hmm. they weren't talking about pumping and return on investment and i mean they were talking technology and how it could be applied and that was inspiring so I tried to contribute with what I knew and what I could see the potential was. And one day uh, I was approached and asked if I wanted to join the Skype uh, group, which was the Excurrency think tank. The Excurrency think tank, I think, ran for a little under a year. And then we were approached by the SuperNet uh, team back then. And they were asked if we wanted to join them for creating this decentralized exchange. What team was that? The, the SuperNet. SuperNet. It's the team behind Komodo now.
0: Okay, I was not aware of that.
1: Yeah, so SuperNet, um, they were talking return on investment. I think, I mean, uh, the JL jail, uh, jail guy they didn't, I mean, it's not like he was the first to have the idea of a decentralized exchange, mm-hmm. but he was the first to actively start trying to to crack that nut. It was perceived as a quite complex problem back then. It then turned out that with the use of uh crypto and lock it's, it's not that difficult The difficult part is in the is in decentralizing as much of the exchange as possible to the level that blocknet has achieved with the decentralized order book and governance and stuff like that um and all I mean in the process of of getting to that we uh we stumbled upon that we were able to route the information stored in the blockchain uh between blockchains. So that opened up for the possibility that besides being a fully decentralized exchange, BlockNet could also be a blockchain router. And I'm quite excited for especially uh, that use case, because I see a need for that in, in how I see blockchain could be um, applied in the real world.
0: Yes, I, I am as well. The, the X router is is quite an amazing thing that seems to not be fully recognized by many other than the people inside the, the BlockNet community, there are some related projects that understand and champion that and, and are working on ways to utilize that effectively. But I'm, I'm quite surprised to hear you say that it sounds like XRouter was actually kind of an accident, or at least it's, it was an unintentional, unintentional result of just some other work.
1: Yeah, it was byproduct of getting the, the two wallets to communicate. And then realizing that once you could do that, you could route the the content and other, I mean, off-chain services as well, which leads up to a, a whole new area of possibility. Because with Blocknet and with the X router, we are able to build in logic into the integration layer between companies. Now, you could do this just with Ethereum. That's where the smart contracts and the built-in logic part is. But the question is whether Ethereum blockchain would fit all your company's needs. There are various use cases where you might consider applying a blockchain. And for that, there are different functions of the blockchain that are attractive. Now, if you look across the ecosystem of blockchains right now, they are not really centered on one blockchain. And those blockchains that are trying to do it all, well, they are not scaling that well. So if you could take and you could say one blockchain was specialized in fast transaction. And you could take one blockchain that is specialized in heavy anonymity. You could take a blockchain which is specialized in having both smart contracts. And with a blockchain router, instead of having to manage several APIs, several transaction builders, you only have to from an infrastructure point of view, connect your existing company infrastructure into BlockNet and through that then interact with other blockchains. So that simplifies and scales your possibility in using blockchains immensely.
0: An analogy that I've thought of is in terms of having discrete blockchains that do specific things, it's more like um, humans interact because we have people that are one person is very good at this thing and they're, you know, that's their profession or that's how they, you know, add value to the world. And we don't expect any one person to be both our doctor and our our lawyer and our, you know, caretaker and all the, you know, not any one person should fulfill so many roles. It doesn't really make sense. Um, so what I'm hearing you say is that XRouter has allowed, or it is fostering a situation where we don't have to have blockchains that are jack of all trades and master of none. We can have blockchains that are a master of one specific thing and that those can be equally integratable with every other blockchain that also has its own specialized purpose or use or strength.
1: Exactly. I'm a big believer in uh, an economic principle that talks about the core and the context. So, what a business does, there are around 20% that is core. This is what is providing value to its customer. And the 80% is context. So, what I mean by that is that it's something that the company performs that doesn't provide perceivable value to a customer i think the same is valid for blockchains sure so that there are a little bit of what a blockchain can do that is relevant for uh, a user and then the rest is actually just bloating it's just adding cost because developing these features even though many of these projects are open source it still has a price It would be much better and also for what is the cost of running the infrastructure beneath the mining of the blockchains, uh, the running of the nodes. It would be much better if the blockchain specializes and then the calls are being routed to whichever is providing the service at the lowest price. It's a competitive market in that way.
0: So you see interoperability fostering that competition.
1: Exactly, I see interoperability as a big, as big as a disruptor as um, user-created assets were on an ICO creation were on Ethereum.
0: Okay. So we know a little bit about your background now. We know what your your perspective is overall, and the reason we have you here today is because you have a BlockNet superblock proposal regarding blockchain governance. In it's in the voting stage at this time, correct?
1: Yes, as we're doing this interview, it is still currently uh, under vote. And uh, unfortunately, it's, it's not doing that great right now. But honestly, it's okay if it doesn't go through because it's already started some great dialogue. And I see this as a marathon, not as a sprint. Also, I don't take it personal in any way if it wouldn't get voted through. I think we need the governance framework. I do recognize that it is in a bit early state. However, it does take a lot of work to create these uh, processes, to document them, to think about the whole design. And I wanted to create a bit of noise that we shouldn't rush this. We shouldn't just create a one pager or in a a Word file and then call it our governance document. I rather give a taste of what I'm working on now. And I feel I had to spend 10 blocks on putting my voice out there. So if it doesn't get voted through, is fine. If it does get voted through, that is great. Then we have a good backbone that we can build on where other people can contribute. It is important to keep BlockNet decentralized, both to keep ourselves away from the eyes of legislation, but also to ensure that we don't have hostile takeovers from within. And I feel that the only way to do that is to empower the service nodes beyond what would be uh, relying on uh, the contributing team, which I could be perceived to to be part of myself. So it's not because uh, I'm, I'm not, I mean, if I was some evil dictator, I wouldn't propose a decentralized governance. I would propose <laughs> to be the new CEO or something of, of BlockNet.
0: So that was quite a lot of stuff that you just mentioned there. What I would like to do is let's go back to what is a BlockNet proposal? What's a super block? And how do we understand how the governance that you are proposing it works into how a superblock works?
1: So the process that we documented with the great help of Fatex, is that we have, I have separated uh, his work into two. I've separated it into the flow of proposal and the flow of vote. Mm-hmm. So both flows are actually just a depiction of the current flow in an ideal state when everything goes as it should go. When people are contributing within the deadlines, which as as currently doesn't happen, people are complaining about that. But this would set more clear guidelines for when are you expected to contribute your pre-proposal? When are you expected to seek guidance from the community? And when are you expected to submit your proposal?
0: So currently that doesn't exist.
1: Not a documented flow. And we have some guidelines that could help you. For example, how do you submit uh, your proposal into the network? That's a bit cumbersome process where you have to open the console in the wallet. Mm -hmm. And you have to type some strings where you have to use some hash hash strings, reuse them in, in later steps. This part, we have documented, but if one were to look for an overall view of how is the process, what are the, the deadlines and so and such, we, we don't really have that documented. And I think submitting that we shall start using, um, for example, BPMN, which is business process model and notation. That would be a great way to give people an overview of what is the processes of BlockNet. We can also use this to then propose changes to the structure. And if we propose a change and if it's voted through, then we can have our developer team code that into effect.
0: Okay. So what Alexander's describing is depicted visually in a flowchart, a series of flowcharts actually, and those are available via a link that he provided. And that will be in the show notes if you would like to follow along and take a look at it. It makes quite a bit more sense when you're actually able to visually see it, at least in... In my perspective, I find that to be very useful. Despite that simplicity, the process that's being proposed is still quite, uh, it's it's a little bit of a labyrinth and I can see why you're wanting to make it very clear what that process is so that there's a regular kind of flow to how proposals are made and how they're handled as they move through their paces.
1: Yes. Or else I think we would rely too much on people having been with us throughout all the journey of the project. It would be difficult to bring in new people, especially if you consider someone who would have the responsibility of either proposing or voting. So, if someone buys up a service node and figure, well, how do I have to do? Of course, they might, you know, read a guide on how they vote. They might use the UI in the in uh, the coming new voting UI, and that could help them. But I think it's it's pivotal in these roles that you kind of understand what is the the big engine here. And we also have to continuously look at is is the process functioning as we intended. We have previously had one instance where um, one proposer actually included a rig roll uh, into his proposal because he assumed that no one would read. proposals actually and they would just vote like in a popularity context and i think that's a shame and we should kind of look at how can we make sure that the proposal isn't altered after it has been submitted
0: wow that's interesting and that was one of my next questions was who can submit a proposal and how does Blocknet prevent spam proposals excellent question
1: everyone um who is willing to spend 10 block can submit a proposal
0: that was the 10 block that you mentioned earlier
1: Yes, that was the 10 block I mentioned earlier. Uh, And the guidelines is that you should then, even though you're just creating a symbolic vote, like I've done with the governance document, uh, you should propose to have the 10 block back so that you propose to get paid the 10 block that is being burned by the vote.
0: I noticed that was in your proposal that the the sum you were requesting was only 10 block. You are basically just starting a conversation and trying to get some eyes and minds oriented to the need for this process to be clarified and able to be refined. Yeah. So you actually make no profit if you are funded.
1: No. I don't think there's a lot of the contributing members right now that are actually making profit from their work because, I mean, I have a day job to sustain me and I'm helping BlockNet to the extent where it gives me energy, where it fulfills some some part of me and also where I get to be, be part of this. I haven't really ever asked uh, for, for funding from the super block uh, or community funds. I have once um, because later this year I'm, I'm going to Malta to... Represent Blocknet at a conference. I paid for that out of my own pocket, but then afterwards, I let the community know that if they wanted to donate uh, for my expenses, then here was my expenses and this was my address. And I was funded for 150% within, I think, it was less than five minutes. It was amazing.
0: I remember that.
1: I think people should try to contribute just with what they can, without actually having to be paid. If you are invested in BlockNet, you, you should have an interest in, in growing it and contributing by itself. I hope that we don't get to a state where people are only helping if they get paid. I would see that as a sad turn of culture.
0: Wow, that's that's really amazing. And I, and I remember that was maybe even one of the first things I, I observed when I joined the community in the Discord was... Seeing you being reimbursed for that trip, it seemed to have occurred without hesitation. And that positive reinforcement, I think, is a really great aspect. So if you have both people with your skills and desire to add to the momentum, the positive momentum for its own sake, rather than for financial benefit, that that's being reinforced by how the rest of the community observes that is something that speaks to the quality of the project and the intent of the people that are involved. It was really attractive to me personally. So here we are today.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I would only encourage others to get involved in contributing whatever skills they have for BlockNet. Personally, I have been able to leverage that. I have this experience through BlockNet to do a conference for uh, the Danish version of Computer World, which is one of our bigger IT publications. I did that uh, together with Microsoft, of course. My day job is working for Denmark's biggest uh, Microsoft partner, which helped with that. But I mean, it all goes in, in hand. If you have a field where you're interested in. And if you start doing some work and branding yourself in that way, then other tasks will uh, will follow. Now I'm having meetings with people about how to use utilize uh, blockchain technology. And I hope that one day I'll even be able to put BlockNet in, in play in, in such situation.
0: That's really great to hear. So I wanted to, to follow up to that. Previous question was, how does the BlockNet prevent spam proposals? You, you mentioned there was something... Was it a proposal that had been altered and you said there was a rickroll in there? Yes, you could see that as a, as a spam proposal. It... I, I would. <laughs> so how does Blacknet keep that at bay currently?
1: Well, there, there is the cost of 10 block, where if you propose something and you lose and it doesn't get voted through, then you, then you lose your money. Now, if you're willing to just throw money at the system, then you would be able to create a lot of proposals. But I'm quite sure that voting the service nodes would vote you down and you wouldn't get compensated back the cost of this. And so you would f- effectively have burned block by spamming the network. This is why we have a cost for for making proposals. And it's landed on 10 um it used to be more uh we had a discussion whether it should be 10 or 15 and that was actually the service notes voting for that it should only be 10. we could always change that price if it starts becoming a problem with spam attacks
0: you would have to you would have to really want to cause some problems and s- spend some money to bother to do that yeah so going back to the introductory section of your proposal, which was in written format, you talk about a few things. And one of the things that you mentioned is that the BlockNet currently lacks the means to grow inorganically. I did not understand that. What does that mean?
1: Yeah, what it means to grow organically versus inorganically is that if you have a business and you scale by the money that you get from clients, so let's say you start up a business, you have your initially uh, initial capital. And you use this to start generating uh, revenue. Now, this revenue, you take out some, but you use the revenue to reinvest into your company and eventually you're able to hire more employees and you'll grow by that. Inorganic scaling of the company is when you either are having a, a capital infusion or if you are lending money. In blockchain sense, we cannot lend money from anyone. Um, what we can do is we can add inflation. We can essentially what would be equivalent of splitting um, the stock or printing new stock of a regular company. You could say that the super block is a controlled measurement of which every month we print extra block and we use this to fund development. Also, we have the community fund, which was funded by um, an attempt to exploit uh, an error that we got back when we added the master node, which is the service node, uh functionality um, a group were exploiting and staking more coins than they they should have been able to so this uh was then i mean they sent some of them willingly and then we uh we forked them out in retrospective this was uh it was bad because we had to, to make a centralized decision even with the voting on it, we we should try to avoid getting into a situation like that, especially when we start having a, if we and when we start having clients on the network. You would say organic growth is just you know you start your hot dog stand and you expand based on mm. what revenue you were able to to turn from that. Inorganic is that you go down and you borrow the money to take over an existing restaurant, and then you expand using using that capital.
0: So having both of these means of growth is is important or vital to the survival of BlockNet? Is that the takeaway that I should be getting from that?
1: Uh, okay, yeah. So why inorganic growth matters for BlockNet? Inorganic growth matters for BlockNet because we are in a very competitive space where being first to market is important, but being first to pivot into uh ecosystem so getting a big share or a complete domination of a specific uh, markets ecosystem is everything in the blockchain space okay you know in the regular world you would talk about developing the minimum viable product but in the blockchain space you should think about how do you develop the minimum viable ecosystem because we are a systems made for an integration layer integration between different entities. Since we are a platform that provides, well, we are trustless platform, the service that we provide to whatever industry where we are applied is something where there is an ecosystem of actors who have a need for a trustless system integration.
0: Okay. In the introduction, you also state that 90% of blockchains die. So I'm wondering, is that an actual statistic? And if so, where did it come from? And whether or not it's an actual hard fact or not, why did you mention that at the beginning of your proposal?
1: Well, I think the actual number is actually, uh, um, it's actually lar- larger than that. Uh, it was mentioned by Deloitte. Um, now, I could try to find the exact source, but I think uh, Vitalik has also stated it. The reason I mentioned this was that I see that if we are unable to create um, an effective organization, an organization that is actually able to scale while remaining decentralized, because we are up against startups that are not trying to be decentralized to the extent that we are. But if we are not able to scale by organization, then we will die like any other company that is unable to get the organization to function. We are right now trying to work very hard on our marketing, and we're working very hard on establishing better development of products, processes. However, an organization like ours should be more than that.
0: So the importance is that the governance has equal importance with all these other aspects that Blocknet is working very aggressively on. So it makes sure it's not part of that ninety plus percent.
1: Exactly. I mean, we now we have a somewhat functioning um, funding model. We do rely a lot on that. The market can uh, um, that the market can absorb the the extra block that we print each month by the super block. And whatever funds is released by the um, released by the community funds. But that's just the, the the current funding scheme. And I think that is working better than uh, a pre mine or ICO model where you do eventually just simply run out of funds and you have to seek second ICO rounds third ICO rounds maybe even institutional investors and I think that the way that the BlockNet currently is is functioning is it's more fair in a way because the investors that have a better I mean they're they're not getting screwed over by that you all of a sudden introduce a new round of fundings and they, they just get diluted by a lot here they can kind of they have a say in what should get funded and how much should their share be diluted in hope that the overall value rise and absorbs that dilution.
0: That's a really interesting point. I never considered the funding model in that way. Is the model that the Superblock is based on, is that from any other projects or is that entirely a, a BlockNet creation? Where did that come from?
1: I'm thinking back when we initially discussed uh, adding masternodes to the project, we were we did it with some... I don't know if remorse is the correct word in English, but the service notes are inspired by Dash's masternodes. And Dash is the first to market in this. But you have to know that in the history of things, um, Dash was uh, a big competitor to X-Currency back in the days. And their community was not very nice to us. So, of course, implementing any of their code was something we didn't do lightly. And uh, unfortunately, by doing that, we actually... Uh, imported uh, what was later exploited so oh
0: wow Mm -hmm. you mentioned in the text about um, the difference between a DAO and a DAC which I'm guessing people call DAOs and DACs I don't know if they say that with their actual voices or not but um, (laughs) you point out the difference between those two things and I would like you to expand on why you think that that differentiation is important for BlockNet Mm -hmm.
1: it's a differentiation that Vitalik initially did. The reason that I thought that it was needed to define the entity of BlockNet in a governance document was to kind of have it stated in print that BlockNet is a business, it's a corporation. We are here to turn a profit. We have defined revenue streams and we are chasing revenue streams. Sure, we want to change the world but we are not a cryptocurrency per se we are utility token that means that we should provide utility and then through various mechanisms, we should somehow redistribute the value that was paid for the value added to the users we should redistribute that back to the owner structure in this sense being the stakers and in particular the the service nodes So how the revenue stream is functioning in practicality is that, well, we have the transaction fees on the network, but even even Bitcoin has that, and that's a a basic redistribution of of paying for the services of using the infrastructure. But also we have trading fees from uh, the DEX and the trading fees from the DEX will create uh, buying pressure on block from the market. And then redistributing those trading fees back into whatever service node we're servicing that trade. So that also creates a competitive advantage or com- competitive um, factor for part of our infrastructure, which is the service nodes that provide various services for BlockNet. For example, the decentralized order book. Now, what we also have is that these trading fees they might be tied to the decentralized exchange. However, using the router if you use it in a public blockchain if you use between public blockchains you would have to settle the value of moving not only the the content of a transaction uh, a content of the block in the transaction from one to another but you also have to settle the value exchanged when doing that and this would generate again trading fees using the underlying decentralized exchange. So this is just one revenue stream. We have identified several other potential revenue streams, some of them having to do with what is currently being developed by the marketing team in the CoinHub. Uh, The CoinHub is a promotional page for coins that are hosted on decentralized exchange. So it's a way of gathering up the news of a particular coin, giving some information about how is it relevant to the X router, and... Well, what we could do is we could have them rent some space for their own information or maybe different rankings um, on the page that they could pay to have a better ranking on the page, better position. And that again, could create some buying pressure, that they would have to pay this to a community fund, that they would have to pay this to then redistribute it to the different service nodes. So being at DAC means that we are chasing revenue streams. It means that we are trying to approach this with business models in mind. We are not just an autonomous organization. We're not just an open source project. We are chasing a profit.
0: Very succinct answer. So the first the first diagram in your proposal which is on the draw.io diagrams yes it outlines the tiers of responsibility for the project so on the flow of accountability tab you have it structured in such a way where the service nodes are always at the top and you you were talking a little bit before about importance of the service nodes. And I was wondering if you could expand on what does that mean exactly? Why why are the service nodes at the top? Why are not the team members at the top, for example, for an alternate potential structure?
1: Mm, Yeah, great question. I think the main reason that I always put the service nodes on top is that it's a manageable amount of decentralization for now. So having the service nodes functioning as I mean, in a way, it's both the president and the board of directors of the company in in one decentralized role. But having them instead of the team means that then we are actually, in fact, decentralized. It means that we don't have someone who has a final say, some commander in chief who could go in and overrule decisions. I don't think that would be healthy to do. And in fact, I believe that we should decentralize our current organization even more in a sense that we still have a team channel. We still have some roles where they are deciding what gets put on the roadmap. They are deciding what gets added to the Trello board and what gets worked on when. And sometimes we see that the community acts out on that, that they don't agree on the current roadmap, the the current prioritization. I mean, my long-term vision for BlockNet would be that at some stage, the service nodes would have a dashboard Performance indicators of roadmaps where it would be easy for them to kind of shuffle resources around and look at performance and take executive actions on various topics. I mean, they might, we might need for that to be practical to have them do it through some sort of committee or maybe even have a group of general secretaries. But I wouldn't like if we got to a place where we would need a CEO or a CFO. That's old world thinking. And I don't think it fits into being decentralized. It's We have to remember that having these roles, that's represents centralized ownership. It, rent, it represents centralized responsibility and it represents a concentration of of power that that can force through decisions but can also be uh, governed by the state, that they can come and they can take this person and put him for accountability. Well, I prefer that if we had a much more decentralized structure in in everything we do. And I I see decentralization as the core strategic principle of, of BlockNet. I think we should have other strategic principles for BlockNet, especially in the developing in the development uh, and design of BlockNet, but I think that there should be one, always one core strategic principle, and that is to keep BlockNet as decentralized as practically possible.
0: Okay, I like the sound of that. So the structure you're proposing here is one step in an incremental move toward greater decentralization, which is achieved by giving more autonomy and authority to the service nodes.
1: Yes. That was my intent. And I recognize, and that's also why I say it's it's more about getting the message out there, starting the dialogue, and also making sure that people see that there's bigger work to creating our governance structure than just writing a one-page N-word. It is that we have to start looking at, at a big design that kind of in, incorporates a new way of, of uh, organization. And I think that uh, this job would be heavy if we decide to do it ourselves. Also, back to that whole core versus context, designing the, the decentralized organization of BlockNet, I mean, unless we find a way to market that, that isn't really core of BlockNet. That is just the context. Um, sure, a decentralized organization would provide value in that it's another layer of decentralization, so meaning another layer of security for the users of BlockNet. But we are out in, in a very abstract layer um, here of what would it actually mean in, in terms of risk for an for end user if we were more centralized. But I think for the the principle of it, we should strive to be as decentralized as possible. And hopefully developing some exciting decentralized organization will also help us attract talent where people see that we are the real deal. We are working for decentralization. We are building at going after the Satoshi dream. Excellent. I made a lot of diagrams here in, in this tab, and I didn't include all of them in the document. I only included what I felt were ready. So we have the simplified role tier, we have the Discord tier, and the Discord tier. Uh, I don't know if it's in an, in effect yet, but it's something that Fatux, uh designed, and that uh, and it did some review on it, and they agreed that that it should be set in effect. If it isn't already, then it should be soon. A lot of my my proposal is just documenting things that already are. It doesn't really include a lot of new stuff yet. It's more just, it's it's the backbone of what we could add stuff to.
0: That clears up actually a lot. You're kind of saying, here's some new ideas. Here's where we could go. But first we need to know where even are we in the first place. Yeah, I
1: focused a lot of on the as-is before the to-be.
0: Ah, the as-is. Got it. Yes. Not the as-is. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that must have been my Danish
0: accent. <laughs> uh, that's funny. So the next question I have is in the flow of accountability diagram, I noticed a couple of new terms, role block and ad hoc block. What are these and how do they relate to the super block?
1: So the reason I didn't include this in the the actual proposal is that this is me kind of experimenting with what we could do. And I would love for us to add some different new kind of voting opportunities. Or see actually included the roll block and the ad hoc block in the actual proposal.
0: So this explains why those terms are not in the text. They're only in a diagram because they're not part of the official proposal. Yeah, that's good to know.
1: But the roll block, my intent with that was that all roles, and I've, I've started with the strategy group, which is also a separate proposal. So all roles should be voted in because we do have some legacy roles. That is kind of just, well, that's how the project started. Like I was the strategic advisor because I was in the think tank group. I mean, yes, my initial uh, title was the... Uh, think tank member I was the only think tank member besides uh, Dan and Arlen. so yeah we are at, at one point I, I was talking with um, with Dan and he said well well we agreed that I, I should be um, a strategic advisor instead uh, in recognition of of what was the actual type of, of advice I was giving it wasn't just think tanking it, it was uh, strategy advising but this was never voted in this is just like how it always was and and that's a centralized decision. I think it's very healthy if all roles and all channels are documented, how people are added or removed from those channels are documented. Now we do need some channels, for example, the strategy channel where we can explore new business opportunities, new partnership opportunities. Perhaps if one team member is is getting critique from the way they are doing work, I need to be able to have a conversation with them where we work on how they should work going forward what should they emphasize how can they better think in uh, scaling and the future of of blocknet into um, what they are doing so we need some some place where we can help each other grow where it won't be scrutinized because else it won't be a safe space and people can't really you know ask for the advice that that they might need so we need we need some sort of, of back channels but i think that membership and governance of Of those um, should be public and i think that we should use it in a way that these are roles that are being done on behalf of the service nodes it's not something where they are they have some institutional power or they have some god-given power (laughs) this is something that uh, that they are doing it um, on behalf of the service nodes
0: Okay, so that, and, then, and then that brings us back to the, the emphasis on decentralization and breaking that out of uh, anything that could be perceived as someone having too much control or influence or whatever.
1: Yeah, exactly. Honestly, I see that as an attack vector. Yeah. I see it as something where, where people could do a hostile attack by simply infiltrating our organization structure and then in some way getting into a role where they couldn't be removed again or someone could be coerced i mean if we are really successful someone could be coerced and we need some way to kind of deal with that that they don't have so much power that they could do damage to the project to the organization yeah the the idea behind the ad hoc block was just like we had uh, recently we had the vote for so ad hoc block uh, is for having, uh, for example, when we recently had the vote, if the cost of a new proposal should be 10 or 15 block, this was done outside of the, the super block. So that was created in a, a new additional block that was voted on. So in reality, we already had one ad hoc block, but I was just wanting to kind of document that this is an official thing. It is something that that could happen once in a while. I think it should be uh, the privilege of the role that Annie has as the project coordinator that he can kind of call in this, this extra load
0: provides some extra flexibility when needed.
1: Yeah. And then we we can always look at the balance of powers. If at some point, maybe the strategy group should be able to to, uh, also call in or something, but in the end, because it goes to the service nodes, I think that would be a, it's it's a fair contract if it's just something that that Hany uh, or his role as the uh, coordinator can do. Because I think that that's another thing that we should start talking more about people in roles rather than people by names. That we have project coordinator, but in the future, we might have several project coordinators. We have a market director, but maybe in the future, we should have several. This is actually best practice between many companies now that you have a focus on roles that you categorize your organization by roles and you kind of make a capability map based on on those roles you say well if you are this type of role you should have well somewhat this type of personality you should have these uh, skills and you categorize what type of skills uh, do you have so i mean it's sometimes it's uncomfortable to be put uh, put into one of these boxes especially if your profile doesn't fit what you would like to do. I know that can be frustrating. But what it does do is that it, it will help an organization to scale. And you can always, I mean, where I see it not functioning is when some HR group is doing it for the sake of it, rather than seeing it as a, a continuous process where you always try to adjust and even you know let someone get in, even though they weren't the perfect fit, but they had... You know, you should also experiment sometimes. You should try to, to grow with it. But for the sake of BlockNet, we should have several uh, in, in a different role and we should define the roles. And the more volunteers, uh, the more free contributors or part-time contributors that we can
0: have, the better. You'd have more overlap and flexibility that way. Yeah.
1: I would hope that our paid um, full-time uh, paid members what they in in essence would do going forward were more focusing on defining the process defining the the requirements for a different task maybe defining the needs defining the kpis find a strategy help make a plan but then we would have other people contribute with whatever skill they have a cost that would be equivalent of something you do after work or simply because they have a stake in the company and they they want to to contribute. They want their name on a contributor list. And this contributor list, I also see as something very important that we should add as soon as possible, which is just a log of who is contributing what. We kind of have this in the history of, of GitHub, but that's only for the code. We should also have that for who is doing something else for the project, like who's helping with the marketing, who's creating some graphics, who's, who's working on a governance document.
0: <laughs> exactly yeah that isn't on your your document <laughs> that's a that's a new idea so it's an idea i had it i didn't include it well i guess you said you didn't include literally everything which apparently is probably quite a lot of ideas you've got yeah um just by judging the uh the, the material that is here which is pretty dense and comprehensive pretty impressive to look at actually thanks so to kind of wrap it up, I wanted to make it a little bit lighter. We've been covering a lot of really dense stuff. One of the things that I found curiously tucked away, I think it was in one of the last tabs in that document, is one of the revenue streams you have is for a troll box and limited edition memes. What on earth is that in there for? <laughs>
1: yeah. So that must have been in the, in the business model.
0: That's where it is, yes.
1: So uh, as I was mentioning, um, the CoinHub highlights be one revenue stream where a particular coin would choose to pay to have a better placement in the coin hub overview but likewise we are making a decentralized exchange and a good exchange has a troll box <laughs> and what could make an exchange troll box even more crazy even more decentralized well how about no restrictions on avatars how about that you could buy a unique avatar or you could buy the rights to an avatar and then resell that avatar? Or how about that you could create a meme, but then you would have the ownership of that meme in the Trollbox and you could resell it or you could buy it as, as an exclusive? And then uh, all registered like uh, CryptoKitties, but just for Trollbox Edition, registered on the blockchain.
0: I'm really glad I asked that question. <laughs> You're, you're clearly quite serious about all this, but you actually also are not afraid to live in the real world and have some fun. So I think that's really cool. Yeah, you have to. You do, you do. Well, I am out of questions now.
1: Thank you for having me on. I would love to do another one in the future.
0: Fantastic. So I wanna thank you again, Alexander, for being with us today. Uh, any final thoughts?
1: Mm, I'm still very bullish on BlockNet. It's a, it's a special project. We're gonna make a difference. I think also, especially for for blockchain adoption in the real world. So stay tuned. We're going to fight this bear market and and ride to the moon together again.
0: All right. I like the sound of all of that. Thank you very much. Thank
1: you, Scott. I enjoyed it.
0: Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Scott Wayman. Feel free to join the BlockNet community or share this show with a no-coiner. We've made it easy, so you can direct them to iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox and Library. I've recently posted a poll on Twitter asking for input on the content of the show if you'd like to have a say in where we go next. Links galore are in the description. Until next time, take it easy and don't forget to go outside once in a while.